Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, March 29, 2010, and happy Passover. Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one keto infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Dr. Susan Love. In our Survivor Spotlight, the lovely Stephanie LaRue, returning champion, young adult survivor of breast cancer. And, of course, Dr. Susan Love, president of the Dr. Susan Love Research Foundation, clinical professor of surgery at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. As a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the nearly 5 million young adult cancer survivors and co-survivors affected by, you guessed it, stupid cancer. On the web at i2y.com, we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. Why? Because survival rates and quality of life in young adults have not improved in 30 years, because remission is no excuse for cure, and because survivorship is all that matters. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun, and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Unable to join us tonight, but we're sending good vibes. Our broadcast production assistant, young adult survivor Amanda Freeman, joining him, uh, me, not Amanda, in the studio tonight. We've got our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Welcome back, Jack. Hi, Matt. I see you survived the week. I survived the week and the weekend. Very impressive. So uh, Jack will be monitoring our uh, live, concurrent, interactive chat room. So if you have any issues with the show, check it up with him. There's a chance he might listen. And uh, in our studio audience tonight, we have two special guests. We have Courtney Hamilton. Hello, Courtney. Hello, Matt. I understand you know Jack from a long time ago. I do, and I refuse to believe that he's a big deal. Yeah, he's not a big deal. Not at all. Okay. And of course, in our... Uh, that's what my mother tells me. You are not a big deal. And, of course, one of our fabulous interns, Hello. the very red-headed, very tall Kenny Kane. The Welcome. The very ginger-esque. Very ginger-esque. 
Yeah, Cartman doesn't like you, does he? No. Okay. All right, go sit down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, of please. course, please welcome my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from right here in New York City, 14-year breast cancer survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy editor of TV Guide, and former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel, the lovely and talented Lisa Bernhardt. Hi, Matthew. Hello. And the booth, and we got the fabulous Kenny and Courtney. Hi. Can I tell a quick story about the fabulous Kenny? Oh. Yes, you may. Yes. Okay. He is fabulous. So today, I2Y BFFs Kevin Hearn and his bare naked ladies bandmates we did, love a, the did a concert in uh, in Long Island in Farmingdale or something, and uh, they played a concert at two o'clock this afternoon in a bar promoting their new album All in Good Time that comes out tomorrow, and I highly suggest everybody go get it because it's excellent. So Courtney, Kenny, and I go to the concert, and before the show, we're talking with Kevin Hearn. And I introduced Kevin to Kenny, and guess what Kenny says? What does Kenny say? He says, the first song I ever downloaded on Napster was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And there was a very awkward silence. Is that your final answer? And I turned to him and I said, if I had a million dollars? And he was just like, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then I also said, well, when you download songs off Napster, you're basically ripping off the artist, because as many people know... Uh, probably like, what, 10 years ago, Napster was launched and all these albums were, and movies were being downloaded for free and the artists weren't being Took paid for their work. Took out the music industry. Yep. Right. Yep. Brought it to their knees. So I said to Kenny, I was like, well, you should at least give him a dollar because of that download. So Kenny essentially looked at the uh, premier uh, uh, member of the Bare Naked Ladies and Bare, Bare Naked Ladies, and because he's so steeped in popular culture, he came up with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire rather than the correct title of the Bare Naked Ladies song, and then proceeded to say how he ripped them off and got it up off a Napster instead of paying a buck for it on iTunes or something. That's correct. He's a fabulous intern. That's why we love Kenny. The story gets better. <laughs> so, picture like an hour later, we're like standing like right right at the front of the stage to the right side where Kevin's keyboard is, and the BNL's doing their set. Everyone's having a good time, and in between songs, Kevin proceeds to announce to the audience and the other guys in the band that before the show, someone told him that their first Napster download was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Rut row. And my heart just sank because I thought for sure at that moment Kevin would turn to me and say it was Jack's friend that said that. Nice. Because it wasn't Kenny Kane that downloaded that, that wrongly named song. It was Jack Buffard's friend that downloaded that wrongly named song. I think you need to socially disassociate yourself from many people. Yes. Starting, starting with the fabulous redhead sitting on the couch. But if you can get public recognition from bare naked ladies, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Come on. Well, I, I actually love did. it for them to, to, to say Jack Buffard and them to acknowledge you publicly as a friend of theirs. It doesn't matter. Actually, I think Kenny Kane did you a favor, Jack. Uh, he might have, but I did get a shout out during the show. During one of the songs, Kevin turned to me and was like, Jack. That's really the entire reason for telling the story. <laughs> no, we all knew that you no, got actually, a shout out. The entire reason was. Because Kenny's here, and I wanted to embarrass him. <laughs> he doesn't look very embarrassed. In fact, he looks emboldened. Of course, he is red, though. He is red all the time. <laughs> or gi- ginger, as he likes to say. Right. No, and uh, ironically, the name of the establishment that we were at was the Nutty Irishman. <laughs> I just didn't know I was standing next to one. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. Anyway. Anyway. So, in recent news, I've been sick. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you missed my birthday dinner. I did miss your birthday dinner. Not with cancer. Was... You're healthy. No, you I'm, had a bad... I'm, I'm yeah. healthy. I'm not sick, cancer sick. I've, I've gotten... Matt got, got a case of the uglies. I got. I have my seasonal cold flu allergy 
shit fit and um, was pretty much bedridden all weekend. But I'm I'm on the mend. And yeah, if you were you were down for the count. If I'm coughing or sneezing or hear strange noises tonight, please forgive me. <laughs> it only happens once a season, uh, maybe twice a year, perhaps. But uh, thank you very much for your kindness in not getting unbearably disgusted by any potential nasal sounds. We're, tr- out of we're me. trying to keep this big silence of the lambs ski mask on, Matt. Because the rest of us don't want to catch it to prevent the odd noises, but it doesn't quite work. I did see him eating fava beans with the Chianti, and I couldn't figure out what the entree was. <clears throat> it was a little bit of bouffard steak. <laughs> ah, very nice. Yeah. The booth stew. So the big news this week, which is what we hinted on last week, was the signage of the bill into law by President Obama of the Health Care Reform Act. Yes, indeed. And that gets, in my book, this. Because I think it represents the greatest thing to happen in this country since the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. And that's uh, and it's causing as much uh, ugliness and strife out there as that Civil Rights Act, which Frank Rich in his New York Times well, column has pointed out. Some of the names being thrown at our congressmen and uh, you know everyone who backed this, this vote are words that have not been uttered on Capitol Hill since the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, just, just really poor form really uncivilized behavior, and I really have to tell the Republican Party, the leadership there, not that they listen to the show or not, <coughs> there you go, that, um, <laughs> hack, I'm bringing back the hack <laughs> button, bring up the hack button. <laughs> seriously, that, uh, that they are setting a really bad example for the people out there that are going to listen to them, and, you know, you never see the Republican leadership out there, I don't want to turn the show into all about politics tonight, but you never see the people that are espousing the vitriol in the street throwing bricks to their windows. They're always telling the people to be angry, and then the people throw a brick to the windows, and the Republicans are never accountable for emboldening these citizens to feel like they have to be as these uncivilized barbarians because they're crying because they lost. And you know what? Tough shit. You know, you lost. This is your country. This is the way it is now, and you have to be the best patriotic citizen you can. Yes. We uh, again, we don't want to get too political here, but uh, <laughs> but um, no, we just you know sometimes when some parties are in office and other parties are in office and things don't go through, some parties accuse other parties and say, well, don't we all have to get behind who's the president now and forget about and, and lead the country and move forward when something gets passed? Isn't that what John McCain said in his concession speech back in two thousand eight? Well, he said well, country first, and that you know. Obama is my president, and I will do what I can to support him in a, a patriotic, something like that. And right. here he is telling us now, actually Bill Maher said it best. McCain came out after the bill was signed and said that, um, he said that uh, expect no cooperation from the Republicans for the end of the year. And Bill Maher appropriately said, you can't claim to have no cooperation for the rest of the year if there hasn't been any cooperation since the beginning of the year. <laughs> so touche, Mr. Maher. Didn't he also say something else? He says lots of things. He said, I can't wait for the Sarah Palin reality show. Ugh. I don't know what you're talking about. Didn't he say something about uh, educating hillbillies or something like that? Yeah, his um, his quote that I really loved, and I, I say this with love because we are an international broadcast and we're heard all over the country and all over the world, that um, it is the progressive, he said the Democrats, but I would call them more the progressives because there are plenty of progressive Republicans out there. It is the progressives' responsibility to drag the hillbilly half of the United States into the 21st century. 
And we went through this in the 60s with civil rights. We're going through it with now with health care. And I don't know how many people out there are aware of this, but in California, up on the ballot for November is the legalization of marijuana. That is huge. And I think that that's going to really change even more. They're just disrupting and they're, they're, they're grabbing this administration by the balls and they're doing what they said they were going to do finally. It took them a year and a half, but they made it happen. And I couldn't speak with more pride as an American citizen and a cancer survivor that what I wish I had beyond I2Y 15 years ago, which is coverage after my parents, cost me a whole lot of money to get on if my COBRA expired at 22. It would have been nice to save all that money by 26. I was one of those people. I'm glad that that doesn't have to happen anymore. Yeah. And that's pretty much all I think we can talk about with regard to the health care issues specifically. But tonight's show, of course, we're having Stephanie LaRue on. We're having Dr. Susan Love on. She has been somewhat controversial in some of the things she's spoken about, but she makes a lot of very valid points, and she's, I give her tremendous respect and credibility for speaking her mind and not backing down on what she truly believes, which uh, is commendable. You don't see that a lot these days. So, so what else is going on? Um, what else is going on, cricket, Jack? Cricket? Uh, yeah. Well, I have big I2I news. You do? I do. Okay. You know about this. I guess so. Yes. I'm going to, uh, this is actually my last broadcast of the Stupid Cancer Show for the next six months. And it's not health-related. The audience is intrigued. I think I heard Courtney uh, ooh and on. Oh, no. No, she's asleep. But anyway, yeah, well, <laughs> Matt was rambling. But anyway, folks, this is my last show because I am heading to Australia for the next six months uh, to head up I2Y Australia, and we're basically starting a national movement in conjunction with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who is recognized. By the way, I had to tell him who the Prime Minister was. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, keep going there. So anyway, I'm going to be gone for the next six months, and that's pretty much it. And the last thing I want to say about this is you need to be careful about everything you're told this week because April 1st is right around the corner. And that was my April Fool's joke. So and I'm just kidding. Dory, you can pick yourself up off the floor. I'm not going anywhere. I will be here for OMG. Actually, uh, you know what, Jack? The joke's on you because Matt and I have discussed this. We are shipping you to the Outback. Yes. The, the steakhouse? Yeah. I love a free meal. There, there's, a, there's a couple of <laughs> aboriginal tribes that are waiting for you, uh, and you're going to be in the middle of the country where there's um, that big giant rock. Have you read about this? Yes, you're I've actually climbed rock? that big giant rock. You're, you, you're headed back there, my friend. Good. That's not a boof. This is a boof. <laughs> and all I have to do is look up at the sun, and I'll know it's 2 o'clock, right? Because I did see Crocodile Dundee. So officially, this is for Jack. For the worst April Fool's attempt in history. Yeah, that was- and if you look at the comments Dory's making in the chat room, <laughs> I think it worked. <laughs> yeah, Dory's the only one in the chat room that's freaking out. I think you've, you've achieved your mission. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> nobody else seems too concerned. No, no one cares. Yeah. There were some good riddances. Right. I think... Uh, Oh, it said Buffard family was listed as saying, good riddance, still come back. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so um, all yeah, right. so obviously, so besides the, uh, the whole health care thing, um, I'm excited to announce that starting next Monday, April 5th at noon, we are officially launching registration for the third annual OMG Cancer Summit in New York City to be held on Sunday, May 23rd. I am overwhelmingly excited for this event. It's huge. And we're expecting between two to 400 people to register from all around the world. We've got people coming from Canada, Australia. There's a guy coming from um, 
uh, Nigeria, believe it or not, named Caleb. He friended me on Facebook, yeah. Caleb. <laughs> yeah. You okay, yeah. <clears throat> I'm still yeah. here. I'm still I here. I was answering for you. I saw the cough coming. Yeah, thank you. But, yeah, Caleb, I, I can't pronounce his last name, but it's like Yuganu or something. He's yeah. a great guy. He runs a spinoff of Stand Up to Cancer, a micro-franchise in Nigeria. Yes, very cool. And he cool. is coming to New York. That's fantastic. To represent young adults with cancer in Africa to the summit. So everyone needs to go to omg2010.org and register next Monday. Tell your friends, tell your family. It is a free conference. We are offering discounted hotel room blocks for out-of-towners. If you have friends here, you can couch surf. We're throwing a uh, big cocktail party on Saturday the night before the conference, and it's just going to be the greatest young professional social networking event. My dream conference has come to fruition. This is what I wish I had 10 years ago, and I am really proud to say that we're doing this with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We're doing it with, with, with Brad Ludd and First Descents, with Johnny Immerman and Immerman Angels, with Tamika and Friends, Tamika Felder. This is the conference to end all young adult conferences. Can I make one complaint about the OMG conference? What, that you're going to be there? And this is No, that's everyone else's complaint. Okay. I am really upset about this, and this is not an April Fool's joke. I wish it was, but Lisa will not be there. I know. Yeah, Lisa will not be. I can't I, even I, talk if, about I, it. I, I, can't. <laughs> I got too verklempt. <laughs> this is, oh, it's painful. I uh, have a previous engagement outside of the country before I signed on to this fantastic organization and this radio show, before I got to sit next to Jack Buffard and his shoes and his giant head. Yeah. And uh, hey, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, mm. no, I'm incredibly hey, disappointed. No. I'm incredibly disappointed that I'm not going to be there. I can't even think, I can't even look at you right you, now because yeah, I'm going to cry. <laughs> but so I looked at Matt and then I started crying. We've we've have met many moments together, and we will we will too, and, and and there will be many more events that we'll have together, Jack. Many more moments. We're gonna get a cardboard cutout, and I'm just gonna walk around with it arm in arm. That's a little. But I do want to say to to our audience that if anyone is looking to come to the OMG conference and you're looking to uh, you know share a hotel room with somebody, I'm more than willing to help you with that. So you can email me at jack at i two y dot com. And I'll make sure that you get matched up, and you can split the cost of the hotel room. And uh, you I was going to say, I, I was—I thought you were going to say, like, especially if you're hot or something, and they were going to shack yes. up with you. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That's, that's a given. Oh boy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. Get I got to bunk the... beds. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's get to the news here. All right. I am cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we listen to Jack Buffard stammer through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of stuff you might otherwise not know about. And we don't want you missing out on free young adults at special events like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, music concerts, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like to hear our audience know about, please send an email to Jack Buffard. His email is jack at i2y.com. That's jack at i2y.com. Take it away, bro. All you. Thank you, Matthew. Head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is your one-stop shop for all stupid cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we wouldn't want you missing out on it, especially if I'm not going to be there. Surviving Idol is an upcoming talent show for young adults affected by cancer. Show off your talent by entering your submission today. 
Visit survivingidol.com for more information. As Matthew just said, the buzz is building around the third annual International OMG Conference for young adults being held here in New York City Sunday, May 23rd in New York City. Again, omg2010.org, and registration will go live Monday at noon. All right, folks, being that I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all the great stuff we have going on for young adults, I've created the Booth News blog. Everyone needs to check out boofnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F dot dot com. It is the official list of all stupid cancer news resources, including surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. And to close the news, everyone needs to head on over to 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter K, dot org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet this underserved population. And that, my friends, is your stupid cancer news. All righty, then. My first guest tonight in the Survivor Spotlight, Stephanie LaRue. Returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer when she was only 30 years old. After having been misdiagnosed by several physicians. Fantastic. Stephanie was given one year to live. I guess it's been fun proving her doctors wrong. After choosing aggressive, complementary, and integrative therapy treatments, she has emerged a dedicated activist and is still here. She concentrates on raising awareness for the need for breast cancer diagnosis in young women in their teens, 20s, and 30s. A diagnosis that was previously ignored and unspoken. She hopes that the days of hearing, you're too young to have breast cancer, will soon be over. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the lovely, gorgeous, and talented, my favorite, favorite baby here, Stephanie LaRue. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, guys. Hi. LaRue. What's up? <laughs> I swear to God, you guys, you, you talk like you're on crack. You have so much enthusiasm. Where do you get it? <laughs> Wow. It is crack. It is. It is. It is we, crack. we just, we just passed it out. We're actually going to be voting for that bill in California. You hit the nail right on the head. Hey, I am very, very happy to live here in L.A., <laughs> in California, Damn. where we are trying to make some things legal. <laughs> yeah. it, helps, it helps us cancer patients, you know? <laughs> so, first of all, how the hell are you? Um, I've been doing much better. You know, I kind of tried to survive a broken wrist in the middle of December, so I've been... Recouping after that, having surgery and pins and plates, and uh, trying to get back to uh, celebrating some life, you know? And how exactly did you uh, injure yourself? <sighs> I was, it's stupid, um, but, you know. Well, you're in the right place for stupid. Yeah, it always exactly. is. Yeah. It always puts the stupid in stupid <laughs> yeah. cancer. Hence, I'm trying to keep branding you guys. <laughs> um, no, it really was stupid. I was wearing my sexy, uh, do you know what CMF shoes are? I'm sorry, CMF <laughs> I know what FME pumps are. CFS. Now I sound like I'm on crack. CFS shoes. I was wearing my CFS shoes at this uh, breast cancer event at a restaurant in Hollywood um, at at an event that they were honoring all of us. And uh, they had a big ice sculpture there that had been melting, and I slipped in some of the water and fell and just snapped. Broke both bones. Ouch. Just think if you didn't have breast cancer ever, you wouldn't have a broken wrist right now. (laughs) Well. That's exactly right, Matthew. This was I'm all about the, the space-time continuum. 
Yeah, it was worse. The brain it was worse than the cancer breath. treatment. So, Stephanie, can we can we can we back up? Um, we haven't met, and I know you've been on the show before, but we've got obviously we've always got new listeners here. Uh, just back back up and quickly tell us your your diagnosis. You were 30 years old, stage four. You had been to how many doctors? What kind of things were were, were folks telling you? Did you and did you have any symptoms? And uh, tell us the scenario. Well, first of all, I was dating a, a young malicious guy who who was. Uh, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time, and he's the one that found the lump, which I think is very important to kind of highlight. So um, he's the one that discovered the lump and was very adamant about me getting it checked out and uh, immediately. So I did, and unfortunately, you know, one after two after three doctors just kept telling me, you know, you're too young, you're only 30, look at you, you're, you're in great shape, you're beautiful, you're healthy, you know, you don't have a family history, that's not what this is, girls, you know, like you don't get this disease and right. don't have anything to worry about, it's just a breast infection, you know, and meanwhile, after six weeks of different rounds of antibiotics and a growing golf ball in my breast with excruciating pain, that was another key uh, symptom and sign. They said, "Be glad it hurts because that means it's not breast cancer." Said the same thing to me too, doctor. Yeah. Did. Yep. So those are the bullet points that a lot of us women have gone through now. When yep. you're on the other side, you know, there's just such a commonality among it all with physicians, and it's unfortunate because you want to work with them as a team. But when they, what's frustrating and stupid to me, is when they just completely start dismissing the possibility that it could be something serious and never test. You know, and all they have to right. do is a needle biopsy. You know, or in my case, I had an ultrasound, and they still said the five-centimeter lump was not breast cancer. Wow. Um, because no family history, too young and, you know, too healthy. So, so yeah, it, it was a frustrating process that I went through um, for a couple of months. But then after I was, you know, I begged, crying, went, went in and begged the cancer surgeon to cut me open and do an incisional biopsy. Yeah, they all had to eat their words, and they basically said it's already metastasized, had to have a spinal bone biopsy. We see a lesion in your spine, T12, and it's more aggressive than we ever thought. And, you know, it's spreading so fast, and the tumors are so large, you're looking at maybe a year left to live. And so, you know, if that doesn't scare your skivvies off of you, uh, I don't know what will. <laughs> so. You know, it's what you do with it, and it's what I did with it. It scared the crap out of me for quite a long time, and I was calling, and you know, especially Susan was the first person that uh, a dear friend of mine put me in touch with, thank God, and she was very helpful and resourceful. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's about what you choose to do with what happens to you and how you respond and react to that. And well, for absolutely. Me, yeah, for me personally, I, I chose, you know, changed my lifestyle, diet, nutrition, got on a ton of supplements, got very lucky um, in being connected with an integrative oncologist at UCLA, and I, I swear to God, I feel like he's one of my life saviors, um, as well as myself, because it is about teamwork. You have to do it together, your friends, your family, your body, your doctors, get with doctors that, you know, you trust, that that are open-minded, and that, you know, yeah, please, go see other doctors for, you know, more opinions and, and um and support. So, I don't know. It's just what you do with it. And I really jumped in with with a lot of gusto, trying to figure out how the heck I could stay here a lot longer than a year. And yeah. uh, after it's, it's been four and a half years now. I just had a life celebration party Saturday night here. Um, it's a slash birthday party, but you know I've been here over four years now and still going strong. And so I think people, you know, hell, I don't want to be having my family and people celebrating my life after the fact, you know. <laughs> I want to be at my own damn party. Yeah, Do it that's, now. That's some bad stuff yeah. right there. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> so what, yeah, I, I can totally relate to your story. I mean, a similar thing, partner found the lump, oh, it's a cyst, you're too young, same kind of thing. I had pain exactly as you said. So it's just so unfortunate that so, 
so many stories like that out there. What is your um, so surgery, chemotherapy? Did you do tamoxifen? What other? Um, what else was part of your treatment? Yeah, I, so I started chemo right away, of yeah. course, obviously, because I did neoadjuvant treatment. So I did um, TAC. I was approved for a Vastin clinical trial, but it was only phase two at the time, and my integrative oncologist didn't feel that it was far enough along to, you know, potentially save my life. So. They chose to put me on TAC, taxateriodromycin cytoxin, all at the same time, mm-hmm. and that kicked my ass for six months and came out of that and did seven weeks of radiation. I'm sorry, before that I had two, three surgeries, I guess, because it took them a few times to get all the cancer in the breast. The lump was mm-hmm. uh, close to nine centimeters, wow. which I know another a lot of other young women, you know, could share, you know, the same experience um, just because it grows so fast and so big. Sure. Um, so, but, you know, that breast looked great for a while. Look, I had an implant in it. Yeah. <laughs> I was happy. I just wish they matched. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I did seven weeks of radiation after that and then had, uh, and then I've been in physical therapy ever since. Um, and then a new recurrence came up in the spine last July, and I, I had radiation again and started Zomeda and been on Zolodex stomach injections, which are, you know, make you want to take a shot of tequila beforehand. Um, and Fomara. So that's all. That's my drug cocktail list now. <laughs> right. Wow. I've seen some of the videos that you've done, which have been really inspiring. Have you, how much have you been able to uh, work or do sort of outside things as you've been going through all this treatment over four years? Well, I, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, it's common knowledge when you, especially if you're doing tech all at the same time. I know a lot of people. A lot of people are on AC followed by T, and that's a very different. Um, you know, regimen and, and response. Your body responds differently. But when you're on all three of those, I, I was down. I was down for the count yeah. every every week pretty much and very, very sick and dehydrated. And the vomiting and the diarrhea kept me from doing, you know, living life like I wish I could. However, you know, coming out of that six months of, of chemo hell, you know, there is there is another side to it. And, you know, it's all in what you do, um, you know, with the determination and the anticipation and the enthusiasm to get on with your life, get back to it, um, and, and move forward and continue living and celebrating the life that you do have. Um, I, I've, I've been very blessed and fortunate, you know, where I've just tried to keep myself in really good shape, you know, with exercise, with red wine. <laughs> with lots of so you do drink what red wine. Red I mean, wine. The, I mean I, you know, in terms of diet, there's so much that goes back and forth. Have soy, don't have soy. Don't drink alcohol, have you red know, wine. Twinkies. <laughs> Twinkies. You know, I, I pretty much stay away from, as much as possible, dairy. As much as possible. Sugar and dairy is just evil. And this is these are things I've learned from my integrative oncologist, as well as so many other like-minded people are on the same the same page. But I try to stay away from dairy as much as possible because it just does not um, like my system. You know, it's vice versa. And my integrative oncologist has me eating wild Alaskan salmon because of the omega-3s about three, four, five days a week, mixing that up with you know, some other meatless meat. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't, I don't eat any meat. I do eat, I eat fish, but no chicken or turkey. Right. I steam my vegetables, get all organic fruit and veggies at the farmer's market. Um, I'm just really, I try to be very cautious about what I eat. You know, I do cheat here and there, and that's, you know, that's living. You can't, you can't be on, you know, the strict diet all the time, and you'll make yourself miserable. So he basically said, you know, if you want a piece of cheesecake and you're going to cheat, then cheat, have it, and be done with it. Don't cheat a little bit every day. Just cheat that one time and then be done and, and get back on track. Twinkies. And, Twinkies, exactly. 
Um, but yeah, red they, wine. they are a preservative, you know. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Survive a nuclear holocaust. No, and, and, so, and so the red wine, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the red wine and the alcohol intake. And well, you know, I'm honest. I, I, as, there's so many of us out there that. Because uh, I'm a red wine drinker, too, so <laughs> among they, other I, things. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah. I love red wine. You know, yeah. I, I grew, I, I have it with my fish for dinner at night. You know, I don't drink it every day. I could if I, if I really wanted to because, because I, I, it's that good. But I, you know, I try to lay off of it at times. And then, you know, when I'm out for special events, I'm honest, you know, I, I, I'm a drinker. I drink it. I love it. You I can know? attest to that. I've been personally yeah. bared witness. <laughs> God it forbid. The experience. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you limit it to red wine, or will, will you have any other kinds of alcohols, or do you? Just... I, I do occasionally. I, if there's red wine there, for sure. I mean, because it, it's got ants. I even, I've even discussed this with my integrative oncologist and a couple of my other doctors. You know, look, I'm honest. I drink, and I know a, a hell of a lot of other people drink as well. It's a part of you know life. It's a part of just my lifestyle. Um, if it if it were you know problem of drinking, of course, all day every day, then that's a different. That's a separate issue. But for enjoyment pleasures, for lifestyle and social, that's what I do is just social pleasures, events, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, what, how dangerous is this for me? You know, because I, I feel like I, I have to drink some of it to keep me going because it yeah. makes me sure. happy. It makes sure. me very happy. I hear, I hear you. <laughs> no, so no argument he, here. You know, yeah. he said because it's red, just stick with red. Don't do white. White has too much sugar in it. The red has the antioxidants in it. Just, you know, try to stick with a glass or two instead of a bottle or two. And I was like, you got it. <laughs> okay. and, the, and the wild Alaska salmon, because the omega-3s are higher yeah. than that. And the mercury is low. Yeah. Yeah. The mercury's low. Yeah, the omega threes are really good, and it has to be wild. So I, you know, I stock up. You know, and not farm raised. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. I try not to eat any farm raised. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of wild Alaskan sockeye salmon, I have one specific story. I was in Seattle about a year ago, and I went to the farmers market up there, where the Seattle, the Alaskan sockeye salmon gets delivered by boat, literally right from Alaska up there. And there's um, they showed this on the Food Channel all the time. There's the fish market within the market, and they throw like these sixty pound salmon at each other in, like, a fireman's, you know, chain. Mm. That's it. That's my story. <laughs> well, that, I wish I lived there because, you know, as much money as you – It's what's <clears throat> frustrating is you, you spend so much money trying to eat so healthy and well. It's yeah. expensive, you know, you to go to Whole Foods, which is sure. Whole Paycheck or Trader Joe's. But you know what? It's like Twinkies are two for 50 cents. <laughs> yeah. I Matthew? keep going back to the ease of use. Oh, okay. Well, I could say something really mean right now with you and your Twinkies. <laughs> I don't really eat Twinkies. I'm just making the point that it's easier to be fat. Uh, well, Especially with dollar menus. Yes. I know. I know. McDonald's, all the dr- the fast food, you know. I mean, it's it's... It's, I'd rather I sacrifice. I think that people should sacrifice, and it's the personal choice. But I would rather sacrifice and not spend money on this, this, and this, so that I could spend it at the grocery store and the farmers market to eat. Because that's the fuel I'm putting in my body, and I've that's been like hard. this for yeah. many years, you know. And it's important. It's what makes me go. And I always feel like crap after I eat fast food like that, you know. Yeah. So it's smart. So you're eating. You're, you're eating healthy things, but you're doing it in mo- moderation. You haven't swung so far as to do a macrobiotic diet. No. You allow yourself the red wine and. As you said, a piece of cheesecake every once in a while. But you're being smart about having the right kind of fish and the right kind of alcohol. And um, yeah, I will tell you though, when I was in treatment for those six months of chemo, that's the one thing that my integrative oncologist said: stick to this diet as much as you possibly can right now while the drugs, while you're getting the drugs. After the fact, we'll go from there, and you can cheat more. But just try to not cheat at all if you can possibly allow maybe once a week with one thing. But just try to, you know, no, and I, and actually no drinking. I think maybe I had some champagne in celebration of them getting all the cancer once, and then some red wine with my girlfriends a couple other times. But 
you know, for the most part, I was so sick. I didn't, I didn't want red wine. I was sure. just, I felt horrible. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend it at all while you're in the midst of treatment like that. Right, definitely you know? not. Yeah. Um, just on occasion, just a, a little bit. You know, you don't want to make yourself even more sick at that time. Well, Steph, I want to bring Susan up, but you're welcome to stick around because you know her and you know each other. Oh, I God, just, yeah. I just wanted to conclude real quick by saying that um, I always say this, and I've been saying this for years, and I finally got a good answer to it, which is what's the use of juicing kale if you're breathing L.A. smog every day? And the response was very appropriate. It was like it, you carbon neutral your toxicity. <laughs> you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> I do. I really you're do. You're sort of netting out neutral there's no real benefit to juicing the kale because it's negating the smog breathing mm-hmm. well i enjoy the beach <laughs> playing volleyball and i'm sacrificing you know i, I, I don't care we're breathing a lot of crap here in new york too <laughs> yeah i mean think about it where i'm from in texas they're bringing a lot of cow poop out there so you know exactly. you gotta believe there's toxicity in that <laughs> All right, well, with that, I'm going to introduce our next guest, the star of the evening. Are you ready, folks? Dr. Susan Love has dedicated her professional life to the eradication of breast cancer. As the president of the Dr. Susan Love Research Foundation, she oversees an active research program centered on the breast cancer cause and prevention. She is also a clinical professor of surgery at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, author of Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book. Her most recent project, the Love Avon Army of Women, is a creative internet solution to partner women and scientists in order to accelerate basic translational research, which is my favorite kind of research. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Dr. Susan Love. Susan. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Obviously, very excited to have you on the show. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been in touch for quite a while, and I was really excited to find out that you knew Stephanie so well. Indeed. Indeed. We people here on this coast get together. Yeah, we, yeah, do. we don't like anyone out here. So. <laughs> yeah, we skip to ourselves. We try to in New keep York. everyone else away. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't thank you enough for making the time to be on our show tonight. It's, uh, it's an honor to, to have you on the show. And uh, I think we're in for a very lively discussion over the next half hour or so. Um, so why don't we just get started with you discussing how you got involved with this to begin with and your, your, your history uh, entering the field of oncology. Well, I actually started out as a, as a, and am a surgeon by training. And when I went into, I'm old, so when I went to medical school, there were still quotas as to how many women they could have. And when I finished my surgical training, there were still no, there were no breast surgeons and there were no women surgeons, and so the only patients they would send me were women with breast problems. God forbid they sent me a guy with a hernia. You know, I, I would be too close to the crown jewels with a knife. Um, <laughs> so I got sent all these women with breast problems, and and it was clear to me that they were not being very well treated, and nobody was explaining anything in those days, and and I started taking that on and the next thing I knew what started out as a career became a mission and I'm still fighting the battle I'm still trying to get rid of it even today. Wow. 
Uh, Dr. Love, this is Lisa Bernhard. Great to, to meet you uh, through the airways here and have you on the show. Um, Maya, I'm a breast cancer survivor as well and, and had a female uh, surgeon who you may know, Dr. Allison Estabrook here in New Absolutely, York. Absolutely, yeah. I do know her. Yeah, she was a Columbia Presbyterian at the time. Um, but actually want to segue into these um, since we do have a young adult audience out there, the guidelines now for women having mammograms uh, over 50 as opposed to over 40. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, breast cancer in young women typically can be so aggressive. And I, and I know that the uh, idea behind having those mammograms after 50 is that young women tend to have denser breasts. It's very hard to pick things up on, on a mammogram because the breasts are dense, and I'm assuming the same on an ultrasound as well. But what would you tell young women out there for early detection? What is their recourse? How can they detect something, particularly when they tend to have the most aggressive types of cancers? I know the percentages are low, but when you're somebody like me or like Stephanie, and all of a sudden you get that uh, golden ticket that you've never wanted, it doesn't feel like those percentages are so low. So what can you tell them out there when? Well, I'm well, I think that I think there's a lot of misconceptions in 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 the discussion about this. One of which is um, is that the guidelines are that you can have mammograms under 50. The guidelines were, as a public policy, we should not be routinely screening women starting at age 40. And there's several reasons. One of which you mentioned the dense breast tissue. Another is the risk of the radiation. And, right. and there actually have been calculations showing. That be, if you start before 40, you can cause more cancers than you find. If you start 40 to 50, it's about equal, and after 50, then it starts to be beneficial. And and then the third thing is this whole notion of early detection. You know, we've made it sound as if every cancer grows at the exact same rate and just keeps growing along and at a certain point gets out. And if you could just get there early enough, you could slam the door before it gets out. And and that 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 theory dates back to the 1950s, but has since been shown really not probably to be true. There are some cancers, first of all, there are about five different kinds of breast cancer. Yeah. Some are faster, some are slower growing. Secondly, it doesn't grow at a nice orderly rate. It, it spurts and it rests and it spurts. So this idea that there's always a magic um, window is not entirely uh, true either. And it's exactly, unfortunately, these aggressive cancers that tend to be more common in younger women that mammography is the worst at finding. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, um, one way to think about it is if you had a security guard that could go around whatever building you're in in an hour and you had a robber who could uh, get in and out in five minutes, the chances are the robber would be successful, except for maybe five minutes when he might be able to get caught. And if you had another robber that takes two hours, you're going to find that one. So mammography tends to be better at finding the good cancers, the slow cancers, the ones that are less aggressive, and it tends to be less good at finding the exact ones that you're that you're talking about. So the question is, it's not denying that young women get breast cancer or even that it's aggressive. It's saying, let's not take a tool which really works, I, I think, you know, really works very well in old lady cancers, breast cancer, um, and try to make it, you know, pretend like it works in a group where it doesn't work very well. Let's instead find something that works better. So what and, does that and I think, you know, I think that, well, I'll tell you, I mean, we're working on it, but, and I'll tell you some of the options. I mean, MRI, at least in the, in the 
the BRCA1 and 2 women tends to work better. So if you have people who are at high risk, um, certainly that's an option. For younger um, women specifically, they work better? Because I know MRIs tend to pick up a lot of stuff. People say They do pick up a lot of stuff. That's right. Cancerous. But they yeah. also pick up a lot of cancer. So the question is, you have to decide in the people who are at risk, at high risk, like the gene carriers, then it's worth it because your chance of having a cancer is much higher. If, and just the average woman who who does not have a high risk, it may not be worth it. But if you had a lump or you had a question and the mammogram were normal, um, I would either do a core biopsy. I think, as was as Stephanie mentioned earlier, these days doing a biopsy is pretty easy and and not gonna. It's not like you have to have surgery. Or I would have an MRI. So it was to self, find but, out. But the but the first line of the the first kind of frontier is is it really just for young women self exams? Well, yeah, and and this too got confusing with the guidelines. The issue is they made it. They said. Doctors should no longer teach women um, breast self-exam, and I agree with that. The the issue is that they there was a great study that looked at breast self-exam, and it it compared two very large studies, followed the women for ten years, and showed that the women who were trained in what I call religious formal breast self-exam, you know, in four positions takes twenty minutes, catalog every grain of sand in your breast. Um, did no better than the women who just poked around and found their own cancers. Wow. rolling over in bed. Wow. So what that says is it doesn't say you should never touch your breast again or that you shouldn't get lumps checked out. It says that formal breast self-exam is no better than the poking around that we all do or that, right. that our partners or boyfriends do or girlfriends. Susan, if I can jump in real quick and ask you then, would you be willing to put a distinct, distinctive different definition between prevention and risk reduction? for breast cancer in young women. Is there a differentiation? Um, well, first of all, detection is not prevention, right? So right. early right. detection is not prevention. Right. Mammograms aren't prevention. Breast self-exam is not prevention. That's finding cancers that are already there. Right. Prevention, in my mind, is not getting it in the first place. Right. But it, so it's the way to risk reduction. And risk reduction... Okay, I'll give you a different way to think about it. If you think about um, a good example is cancer of the cervix, because we know what causes cancer of the cervix. It's HPV. Right. And but 95% of the women who get cancer of the, who get HPV, it goes away by itself. Right. And then in the few that it persists, who have the right conditions end up getting cancer of the cervix. So if you can do a vaccine and never get HPV you won't get cancer of the cervix. Okay, it's necessary but not sufficient. If on the other hand, you you know, you don't know what the cause is like with breast cancer, you could change the conditions maybe and prevent it from happening. And that's where things like diet, exercise, avoiding, you know, weight gain and other conditions probably come in. So is that your number one bit of advice then to to a young audience like ours under 40? who the mammogram, you know, for the reasons that we've just discussed, uh, not recommended, perhaps an MRI if they're gene positive, um, and, you know, every once in a while they give a self-exam. But if you say, you know, if you young adult do not want to get, get breast cancer or it's, it's diet, exercise, and anything else, being in yeah, the best and, shape and, as you can. And, and, you know, and join 
and uh, we're, I'm going to talk about it, but join, we're doing this army of women. We're going to find the cause. I would not be surprised that in young women, breast cancer weren't viral also. But we got to look. Yeah. We've got to look. Is, is and nobody's really been looking at the cause. I mean, most of the research, most of the attention goes to the molecular biology or goes to the treatment, and, and I don't want to downplay treatment. I think that's important. But we, we really need to get people focusing on what's the cause and how can we stop it. Well, and then that, that brings up the other issue, too, which is I'm sure you're, you know Dr. Deborah Davis, right? I do. Yeah, she's a good friend of mine. She's been on the show like 30 times, and we love to have her on because environmental oncology, I believe, is the elephant in the room when it comes to the younger generation because I believe we're getting cancer for completely different reasons than why people in their 70s and 80s get cancer. And whether it's carpet fresh or Windex or whatever it is, you know, there, there is the, you know, we shouldn't be racing for the cure. We should be racing for the cause. And I agree uh, well, with you. I, I totally agree we should be racing for the cause, and I totally agree that the cancers are different um, certainly in the younger people than in the older, older people. But that's probably more reason why it may not be environmental, that it may, because it takes a long time for those environmental things to act in, and so in the younger people don't have as much chance to be exposed to them. Uh, and that's why I think it, it may more likely be, you know, infectious. Even with a generation that's grown up with cell phones as opposed to oh, and yeah, hormones, phones hormones or, in the milk and all that, yeah. Ag- agribusiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because breast cancer is not increasing um, in the younger generation. It's not. It's not a higher percentage. Um, so I think those things are probably more related to the conditions. I think those things are actually more related to the old lady cancer. Well, I, I want to um, tie into the healthcare issue, but I want to dovetail into it through this, which is that obviously one of the larger issues that all young adults face, regardless of the type of cancer, is delayed diagnosis due to a lack of yes. sort of symptom literacy in the medical community. Uh, I was personally misdiagnosed for eight months and ultimately given Robitussin for it was brain cancer. Mm-hmm. So my goal in life is to ensure that no young adult gets Robitussin for brain cancer, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. How do you see the interplay between medical communications and the young adult community, you know, growing in a meaningful way to reduce what I call reduce the risk of stage four? Fran Drescher, my friend, likes to say stage one is the cure. And I think that there's a lot of meaning in that. Um, How do we get less young adults given Robitussin for brain cancer? Well, I think one of the things we have, I mean, one thing is health care reform, which thank God it looks like we might get closer to. So a lot of young people don't have insurance and so that's a that's a barrier and another is you know beating doctors over the head which is harder right uh, i've been trying to do it for a long time but the third is empowering um patient people that if they have something that's abnormal that they need to demand to get it checked out and if one doctor's not going to do it they need to go to another doctor and and i think we get intimidated by physicians in general i mean even even when you are a physician you can get intimidated by physicians and we need to not have that i know in in breast cancer one of the things about women feeling their own lumps is you feel from the inside out as well as the outside in as opposed to the doctor feeling so if you think there's something that's not right you need to get a, a biopsy and if if the doctor won't do it then you need to get another doctor and i think we've got to keep um, empowering um, people to stand up to doctors because um, I, I think it's I think I think the public are more educable than the doctors. I hate yeah. to say. Yeah. Back I, I yeah. Would second oh. that. 
Um, you know, going through the, the process, Susan, because when I think when I called you, um, when I was right after I was diagnosed, I had, you know, I am that special case that I did go see more doctors. I uh-huh. saw three different doctors. I had an ultrasound. Um, I had a, a, a needle biopsy. Um, finally, um, went through the core biopsies, but it's just, it, I, I, you're right. I mean, I was so naive. And uh-huh. I'm educated on this because I had not had a family history, personal, and my, you know, my family history to discuss it or even learn about the fact that I could get it. I had no clue whatsoever. And so I didn't have the proper educational tools, didn't have the risk factors, nothing. So I completely put all my trust in every single doctor's hands that I went to see that completely dismissed me. And so I think, you know, we're yeah, And I think, you know, I think part of it, too, is we don't want it to be. Of and, course. you know, we want to believe that it's okay. Yeah. So, so um, if the doctor right. says it's okay, you say, "Oh, good. That's what I. That's what I was hoping." Exactly. And, and, but you're right. Uh, we have to become our own body advocates, our do. own booby yeah. advocates. You know, like you said, you know it doesn't feel right, and if something doesn't feel right, then you keep going to someone until, until you get some- a diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. Until somebody does something about it. So, mm-hmm. if we're talking about the barriers to late detection being insurance, and hopefully with the reform bill kicking in place by 2014. You will have your COBRA extended. You will not be able to be denied for pre-existing condition. There is, we are now reducing the liability for there to be late detection, given the fact that we will now have health care where it won't be a barrier for us to consider going to the doctor. But the second phase of that is to be vigilant and never, never accept the doctor's word as gospel unless we truly believe it, but be vigilant self-advocates. And right? I think that, you know, I think to your to your listeners who a lot of whom have been through the experience and say well that's you know fine telling us now but but actually you this is a message you can get out to your your peers and your friends where the first person you're going to call if you feel a lump is the friend of yours you know who got breast cancer so so or if you feel something so this is where you can be advocates to people and maybe I always say when you're going to the doctor, you should bring your most obnoxious friend with you because, because um, you're, it's hard sometimes to stand up to the doctor. It's hard to ask questions. You're scared to death. And if you can bring a friend that you know and review ahead of time the questions and then let them be the obnoxious one, and then you can just sort of pretend like you couldn't get a ride with anyone else, but you still get your questions answered. Yeah, you know, and you still you still get what you need. So it's not always your you know your best friend, but it's and everybody knows who that obnoxious person is in their life. Yeah. Fortunately, yeah, unfortunately. it's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening just thought of me at that very moment. Oh, everyone's going to try to get bring Jack to the doctor. Yes, the booth. Um, Susan, I'd like to go back to some other uh, guidelines going back to two thousand one. Um, the sort of um, the study that showed that, and correct me if I slip up on this in any step of the way here, but that um, five-year survival rates for a lumpectomy, the patient versus mastectomy, were equal, and so uh-huh. many women um, chose to have lumpectomy more than mastectomy. Um, as somebody who was, um, you know, diagnosed at a similar age as Stephanie, I was 29. Um, I didn't really want to hear about five-year survival rates. I wanted to hear about 50-year survival rates, and I know that there's no study for 50-year survival Mm -hmm. rates. Um, But what I find that uh, many doctors have told me is that, you know, the five-year survival rate is the same, but that the chance of recurrence in having a uh, is much higher 
Mm-mm. for a lumpectomy than have a mastectomy. You say no. that's wrong. No, it's wrong. The, the, the chance of local recurrence, which means a recurrence. So there's two issues with, with breast cancer anyway. One is you can get a recurrence in the, in the, you know, locally in the breast or in the scar after the mastectomy. And the second is you can get a recurrence somewhere else in your body, a metastasis that, that, and so the treatments are, are, are different. One, the treatment to prevent the metastases is some, is if needed, some kind of chemo or hormone or systemic treatment, and the, the treatment to prevent the local recurrence is either mastectomy or lumpectomy and radiation. And the recurrence after lumpectomy and radiation is about 5%, and the recurrence after mastectomy and the scar is about 5%. They're exactly equal. Um, so it's not higher. Now, there are some subgroups when you have a whole lot of um, precancer, DCIS, and your margins aren't clean where you might have a, a higher local recurrence and actually maybe even with mastectomy. The problem with mastectomy as a surgeon I, is that we never get all the breast tissue out. Yeah. Right. We, you know, you can't. It's not like it doesn't come a different color. You know, it's blue, so if you take out all the blue, you've got it. It, it. it. I hate to say we sort of look like chicken fat in there, and so it's not so easy to... Sort out. But you're so, getting more than you are with the lumpectomy. I mean, obviously. No, no, no you're not. I mean, you're getting more breast tissue, but the right. only breast tissue that's at risk, you know, breast cancer is in one ductal system. It's not in the whole breast. Right. And it and so if you can remove all the 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 affected tissue, the results are the same. And really, all a mastectomy is is a wider excision. And there's no evidence that having bigger margins is better than having smaller margins. The, the key is getting it all out. Right. So, okay. Actually, I have a quick question on behalf so the, of my you know, The main argument for, mes- for mastectomy is if the lump is so big compared to the size of the breast that you can't get it out with a rim of normal tissue. Well, and, that makes sense. Okay. And, and, in, and in terms of uh, what about the, the rates for, metastasis, for, for, for metastasizing cancer for lumpectomy versus mastectomy? Exactly the same. So exactly the same local and mm-hmm. uh, in metastasized yeah. cancer. Yeah, in, yeah. In, yeah. And, and that data has held up. I mean, that data is now about we now. I mean, we had five years then, but we now have close to twenty years. Uh, close so to it's twenty it, years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not. It, that data has held up. I, you know, the the issue is is really um, it, it, the metastases part is whether those cells are already out at the time of diagnosis. They right. don't, you know, they don't spread later. They they're already there or they're not there. So so what you do to the breast as far as metastases are concerned is sort of slamming the barn door and the horses, you know, out in the field already. Sure. Um or not. Um and then in terms of local control, then it's getting the whole area out. And if you get it out and you have clean margins, um then the results are the same. So in you fact, know, to, you know, well, I'm sorry. No. In fact, in some women, we actually add radiation to mastectomy because the local recurrence rate is so high. Wow. And that's, right. the, that's the women with, um, you know, a lot of positive nodes or certain kinds of tumors. So so you could think of it as a, you know, a mastectomy is just a big lumpectomy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you, just to, close, just to um, close the loop on this a bit, do you find that, you know, that now that lumpectomies are called... Um, breast-conserving surgeries, am I right? Uh-huh. Um, that, you know, I've heard from many women that they sort of find that uh, 
that kind of anything but that that's you know that they're told that this actually saves more of the breast when there's phenomenal things that are being done for reconstruction for women who want to choose reconstruction when they have mastectomy and that actually um some women have found that when they have mastectomy and reconstruction they actually cosmetically if they are concerned about that um can have an outcome that's more aesthetically pleasing to them than with the lumpectomy. They, they, no, I think that's true, and I think there are certainly choices, but it's also numb. It has no sensation if you have reconstruction, whereas when you keep your own breast, you still have you know, sexual sensation and, and, and feelings. I always used to fight with the plastic surgeons who would say, oh, I'll make you a new breast. It'll look normal and feel normal, and they mean to the feeler, not the feelee. Uh, well, I, would ha- I can speak to this too, just really quickly, because I, <laughs> I'm a perfect candidate for this. I had the skin sparing mastectomy. I got to keep my nipple, and by God, I fought for my nipple. I, and, uh-huh. it, and like Susan said, it, it was for own, my own personal sexuality reasons and and self-conscious reasons probably too i mean anybody would feel it but yeah i told them i want to keep my nipple i want to keep as much skin as possible my areola whatever you can do go back to the drawing board and try to figure it out because i'm 30 i'm single i still have hormones and i'm probably going to be horny again after i get through all this treatment and i would like to not have that self you know um just loathe and uh insecurity when I get to the other side, because I have a breast that looks this way and a breast that looks that way. That was my own personal choice. So, you know, I was very, very lucky that I was dealing with some doctors, plastic surgeons and, and breast surgeons that could make that happen because I know in a lot of areas there's physicians that are either not trained to do it or they don't want to take the extra time to do those surgeries. But I would, t- I would totally agree with you, Stephanie. And I, I also had, I mean, I had a skin sparing mastectomy in 1995, so it was really, I think, one of the first and a free flap reconstruction. And I, saving the nipple for me was not an option, so I had a reconstructed nipple. But I have a tremendous amount of feeling on my breast that was reconstructed. Uh, again, it's not the sexual nipple sensation because that nipple is gone. But I do have um, a lot of feeling on that breast, and, and the symmetry is, is astounding. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, I think it's it, this is very much of an individual decision, and I, you know, I don't choice. think, yeah. you know, I don't think there's a right answer or a wrong I, answer. I would agree totally. Yeah, and I think that one of the mistakes that 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 people sometimes make is when the doctor says, "Well, you can have a a mastectomy or or a lumpectomy and radiation." Usually, what they're what they're saying is, "It's the same, so you get a vote." Um, I mean, when we don't think it's the same, when we actually think one's better than the other, we usually don't give the patient a vote, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, and so and so then it becomes a decision about how you feel about your body, how you feel about your sexuality, all kinds of issues, which are, are personal decisions. And and I, I have no problem with people making um, you know, different kinds of personal decisions. It's, I just think they need to, people need to have all the information and not act totally out of fear. There was actually a paper that just came out today um, from Europe the, where they're having a breast cancer conference, and they did a study and showed that if it was actually talking about contralateral doing mastectomy on the other breast right. prophylactically, and they found if women waited a year, they didn't do it. And if right away they were so scared, they did it. They just right. Mm-hmm. And there's no evidence that it improves your either survival or. We were talking about that before. Or, yeah. Or yeah. Risk. It was yeah. an important study today. Dr. Love, I had a question for you. I want to talk about the Army of Women, but beforehand, I yeah. just wanted to. My wife had a question. She's seven months pregnant, 
and with twins, by the way, so my life was going to change a little bit. But she had a question about checking your breasts during pregnancy because she feels Mm -hmm. like her self-exam isn't working because everything feels grossly abnormal to begin with. Any thoughts on that? Well, but she still should be she still should be checking them because you can get breast cancer when you're pregnant, and um, and it actually is often um, diagnosed later because just for that reason because everybody says oh yeah things are always lumpy, and you still can sort of I mean the whole idea is being acquainted with your body at all times so it's not just one time of the month but all times it's during pregnancy it's not during pregnancy, so if she's you know paying attention then she'll know if something really is markedly different okay that's a good answer but let's let's talk about the army of women i think it's really fantastic tell us how it started and what its goals are and how people can get involved well so my frustration as i as i started to say earlier is that we haven't found the cause of breast cancer and in my professional career we found the cause of cancer of the cervix and we can prevent it and and not breast cancer with less you know and cancer of the cervix we didn't have pink ribbons or marches or walks or any of that stuff and so how come and I, you know, one of the reasons is, I think, because um, in cancer of the cervix, they didn't have a good animal model. So you can do rats for for breast cancer, but it's kind of hard to get to the rat's cervix, I think. Um, and they didn't do that. So they they worked on women, and they found the answers faster. And, and in breast cancer, we don't do very much research on women in terms of, of trying to figure it out. We do much more in animal models. And some of it works, but really most of it doesn't because rats don't get breast cancer normally. So I went to a researcher, a friend of mine, basic scientist, and said, why don't you do work on women? And he said, because women are too messy. He said, I can control the rats. I can control their genes. I can control what they eat and what they do. And it's nice, pretty science. The fact that it doesn't translate to people, a whole other issue. And so, And then he said, and I don't know how to find women anyway. I said, well, that one I can solve. So the Love Army, the Love Avon gave us a grant, and we decided we would recruit a million women who were willing to consider participating in research into the cause of breast cancer. These are women with breast cancer, women without breast cancer. We now have about 330,000 women signed up. 80% of them have never had breast cancer, uh, ages 18 to 100, every state in the country. And what we what happens is scientists come to us with their proposals um, that have been funded. We have a secondary screening process, and if we think they're, it's worthy of our women, then we um, send it out as an e-blast to everybody in the Army. So if one study, for example, was looking at a marker in breast milk. Well, we send that out to everybody because even the 80-year-old woman is probably not breastfeeding, but may but her granddaughter may be or her neighbor, or somebody at church. And so every time we send out a study, it gets virally sent out. We, we um, have put out more than 20 studies, and most of them we are able to recruit everybody they need within a week, accelerating the research, pushing it forward uh, faster, letting the scientists get on to the research and save the money that it normally would take them uh, for recruitment. So it's, it, it's, it's also, initially, we've had trouble getting enough Studies, good studies. A lot of them have been, in fact, um, uh, you know, sort of leftover studies because there's about a year and a half lag between the time you think of a study and the time you can do it. 
But um, now we're starting to get some really interesting um, studies looking at causes uh, and potential causes, everything from the bacteria in your gut and how it metabolizes estrogen was one that I wouldn't have thought of, um, to, um, to looking at, at starting to look at some of the environmental issues as well. And I'm hoping that by having, having this resource, we can push more and more research into this figuring out the cause. If you were to venture a guess, looking forward 10 years, based on your decades of experience, clearly there's more incidence of breast cancer now than there was 100 years ago. Why are we getting breast cancer or all cancer more? Well, one reason is we're living longer. We're not dying of infectious diseases when, in, you know, when we're young. We're not dying of polio, smallpox, all of those diseases. We're also not dying in childbirth. So cancer... You know, we're around, we're, more of us are around to get it. That's one part. But, um, uh, um, but that's only a, that's only a, you know, one piece of the, and we're not being, you know, 100 So years longevity, old. longevity is just naturally predisposed. And it's predisposed. not even, yeah, it's not even, yeah, longevity, you know, in, in, in the, um, in the, uh, used to be that the average life expectancy was 40. You know, well, if it's 40, then the only cancers you're going to see are the ones that happen in young people, <laughs> you guys, right? Because nobody gets old. Right. So, so, um, so that's that's part of it. Um, I think that some of the environmental issues and the lifestyle issues certainly relate to the conditions. It, it, there's no question that obesity um, fosters cancer. There's no question um, that uh, that you know, diet and nutrition and stress and all of these other things. Um, uh, are related, uh, and so, but I don't think they're the cause. I think they're more the conditions. And yeah. and what I really want to focus on in breast cancer, because I, I want to focus on the conditions, so, because I think, however, we can stop it, I'll take it. But um, but I also think that if you could find the cause, if you could find the HPV equivalent, then that's the home run, because now then you then you don't have to care about the conditions. Yeah. Susan, can I ask you this, too? Um, anything else happening um, outside of BRCA1 and BRCA2 when it comes to genes? And I only ask because um, I had my grandmother had breast cancer when she was 39, and she was of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to be gene tested, they all looked at me and said, of course you have it. And, of course, I came back negative. And so they looked at me and said, hmm, and somebody actually said to me, well, you don't have it yet. There could be another gene out there that we just haven't discovered. So, you know, am I possibly BRCA3? <laughs> That's well, just, of course. Knows and, yet. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think that I, I, I have, my family is Irish Catholic, but we have a fair number of cases. And somebody said to me, I'm sure there's an Irish Catholic gene. We just haven't. But we, the common, the most common ones are the BRCA1 and 2, and they've been looking for 3 and 4 for a long time now, over 10 years. And so they're obviously not that straightforward. Um, people have also been looking at SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're, they're not the, you know, a whole mutated but a little piece. And those have not panned out as well as we would like. Those are the kinds of things that you can go on 23andMe and some of these different companies and they're not as predictive as you would like. So what the problem is, the the we caught the big fish, and the little fish are are less common and a lot harder to catch. But yes, people are still looking very hard for um, bracket three, four, five. You know, 
um, six. But I think, you know, some of it is inheriting the mutation. Some of it is inheriting something which makes you, you know, the big thing in cancer, all cancers that's changed, is it's not, you need more than just the mutated cell. It needs to be in a local environment of other cells, a neighborhood that's egging it on. Yeah. And so you need both the mutated cell and the egging it on. And if you have one and not the other, you're not going to have clinical cancer. So they found in mastectomy specimen and you know reduction mammoplasties, a lot of women have microscopic breast cancer cells that are doing nothing. And and uh, why? Because they're not in the right neighborhood. And then in other places, other cells, um, you take cancer cells and you grow them on normal breast tissue, they'll behave normally. Um, because the neighborhood different, so it's like taking a kid out of you know South Central LA and putting him in the country and taking him to church and Boy Scouts and all of a sudden the same kid with the same DNA turns out differently. Interesting. So we need to both look for both. The virus causes a mutation inherited. You can have a mutation, but also you know what changes the neighborhood. And so sometimes what you're inheriting is a bad neighborhood. Interesting. Um, I want to go back to two because I'm, I'm as we talked. I talked about before having this reconstruction, and I had the free flap, um, which I'm very satisfied with. And again, as we, as, as you um, aptly address, it's, it's every woman's choice. There's no right mm-hmm. or wrong way to surgery to. But, but, you know, I, I, I was looking at these studies, and I have written a bit about this. Um, some doctors out of uh, University of Michigan, Amy Alderman, another one in, at Memorial. Um, Andrea Pusick, some plastic surgeons, and they were talking about how there were a large percentage of women, they named 70% of the women in this country are not given their um, reconstructive options, um, or they are told only about an implant as opposed to a free flap because, and that this mainly comes down to economics because doctors are just not reimbursed. No, 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 it's it's not that. It's because the doctor, the plastic surgeon where they are doesn't know how to do the free flap. Or doesn't know how to do it, exactly. And so doesn't want to lose the patient. It's more that. Right, doesn't want to lose the patients. Right, or some of them have told me that they also get the same amount of reimbursement for doing a one-hour implant as they do for doing an eight-hour reconstruction. That's, so, I don't think that's true. It so, may be state um, by state, but I don't think that's true. Okay, so well, if you so you don't think that the ec- economics have anything to do. You think that that really the choice of having a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy is the size of the lump itself. Uh, no, it's I think they're. About, it's yeah, not about no, to I say somebody out of the hospital or do a quicker surgery, you know. No, no, it's the other way around. And surgeons are more likely to do mastectomies because you get paid better for a mastectomy than a lumpectomy as a as a breast surgeon. The reimbursement's better for a mastectomy, and then if you say, "Well, maybe I should have the other one done." They get paid double. So, the economic incentives are to do are not to do lumpectomy and radiation because the Lumpectomy radiation, although maybe if you added it all together, might be more. You've got to split it because the radiation therapist gets his cut, and then the. So as long as we have fee for service, you know, it's. But the the incentives are to do mastectomies, not the economic incentives, not to do lumpectomies. So it's not that it's a but uh, longer. But what about a longer hospital stay or you know a sort of bigger surgery? You know but no, mastectomies longer? are done as outpatient these days. If you don't have a you know, a flap kind of reconstruction as as are lumpectomies. I, I, yeah. No, I don't think so. Exactly, because that's what I went in when I had skin sparing. You know, uh, for for me, it was a personal choice. Like I said, 
but uh, because I don't, I have a scar halfway around my nipple. That's it. You know, I don't have the horizontal yeah. lines, and so cosmetically for me, I feel like it's uh, it's an overall, you know, more, um, you know, effective, you know, result for me cosmetically. Um, yeah, and you know, it depends on where the lump is. It depends on whether the surgeon is good at it. You know, a lot yeah, of surgeons exactly. are not very good at doing a cosmetic lumpectomy. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, they have to go through the nipple, and they don't. This it's a small hole. That's what I was explaining to myself. It's a small hole you're working with, looking down in there, as opposed to cutting, you know, a long horizontal mm, line. Yeah, I mean, it's just that they don't. They don't really care, pay much attention. There are techniques now, oncoplastic techniques, where you can really. Um, do do a reconstruct you know do a reduction on the other breast and do a, a cosmetic lumpectomy but a lot of surgeons right. don't know how to do that and also uh, a lot of I just talked to somebody the other day who was told well you can't have um, reconstruction because you had radiation and I only know how to do implants and um, and you would never want to flap they said it's much too hard and, the, and this is somebody in the Southern California where Plastic surgeons are a dime a dozen, sure. and it's much too hard to find a plastic surgeon who can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that—that's yeah. about you know that's talking about you know. So I, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors there, but my impression is, in and certainly around here, is that many more mastectomies are done because and that that the surgeon is basically the woman is in a panic. She says, I mean, not this isn't always true, but a lot of the time she's told me. When you're first diagnosed, you'll do anything, and you say, you know, I'll offer my yeah. breast off if you give me my life back, sort of the magical thing. And then the surgeon says, okay, and that's the end of that, and yeah. and you know, no discussion. So I think on all sides, we need we need better education, but the pro- of doctors. But the problem is, with a fee for service system, they've got to churn the patients out, and there's no real there's no real you know right and it's for and it's Talking. about having right and it's about having a team and then getting the getting the schedules lined right. up of the surgeon and the plastic surgeon yeah. and that's the that's some people view that as 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 a headache as more extra steps that you have to take that's right, right yeah. when you're um can we just can we just also because um Stephanie and I were talk Stephanie and I were talking about diet can we sort of hear also again it, maybe she's heard this exactly from you it sounds like she's had but from the horse's mouth where do you stand on certain things soy good or bad wine and coffee diet you know if you were to okay I mean, so I'm for I'm almost 15 years out at this point you know knock some soy head, turns but, out that when they looked at the when they looked at at soy as food now not as supplements um, there was actually reduction in recurrence in the women who ate soy. As, not. This is as, a study that came out in the last year or so. As food, as you said, as, and not as a... Did you call not as a, supplements. So I, as tofu, as edanami, you know, but not not taking a pill, not taking, you know, tofu burgers or whatever, you know, but actually Eating the food. Soy. Yeah. Or soy milk, I would it was done. Yeah. It was done in, um, it was done in Japan, uh, or Japan or China, I think Japan, and um, it did show a decrease in recurrence in the people on soy. Soy is really not a plant estrogen. We kind of misnamed it. It's more of a plant tamoxifen. Okay. It it acts like estrogen in some organs and, and blocks it in others. Um, I don't. The caffeine, no data that that increases cancer. Um, uh, for that, uh, so I don't worry about that. I I think that generally the studies have not been able to pick out any one um, dietary factor, but it's more that. Um, not gaining weight, right. that being overweight or not maintaining your weight is is a factor for recurrence, uh, increases recurrence. So 
you know, is it the is it the fried chicken or or is it that <laughs> fried chicken may you know increases pounds? And it's very hard to tease out any one um, dietary factor. Yeah. And Stephanie and I were saying we like our red wine, but I mean, obviously alcohol. No, the yeah, you know. the data on that, yes, on um, the observational studies, and so observational studies are you know they take people and they observe them and they say, oh look, women who drink red wine have more recurrence than women who don't drink wet, red wine. But then you don't know whether it's the red wine or whether it's something else about women who drink red red wine. Right, like so, on Staten Island. Uh, yeah, well, or you know, it was like with the hormones for menopause. They right. uh, they thought that they were solving everything, but what it was was not that hormones made you healthy. It was that healthy women tended to take hormones. You know, that the women who who uh, who took hormones also exercised, ate a good diet, were prevention minded, went to the doctor. Not that the hormones made them healthy. So, well, on I, that note, I really have to cut us short. We okay. reached our time limit, but clearly this is a conversation we could have for hours and hours and. I do believe it would be incredibly valuable to do another show on this this summer if you're amenable to coming back, Dr. Love. Uh, it's painless. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> it's not painless for Jack, but that's okay. I can listen to people talk about feeling boobies all night. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, thank you both so much uh, for being on the show. We'd love to have you back. Uh, Stephanie LaRue and Dr. Susan Love, you guys have a wonderful season. Good luck with everything. Happy Passover. Happy Easter. And, and sign uh, up for the Army of Women. Armyofwomen.org. The there you go. Take care, guys. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, we're on a rush here. So a great show, guys, tonight. Clearly, again, something that is a uh, an unending debate and a great conversation to have. Lots of open-ended things to talk about uh, after the show and uh, coming up next week. So, without further ado, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks. That's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Love. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephanie LaRue and Dr. Susan Love. And our in-studio special guests, Courtney Hamilton and Kenny Kane. Next week's show, Real Estate is the Cure. And our Survivor Spotlight musician, Ryan Hamner, young adult cancer survivor and recording artist. Jonathan Shine, young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the CEO at Shine Media. And Sarah Beatty, founder and president at Green Depot. If you've missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or just search for Stupid Cancer on the iTunes store for our podcast. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live. From the chemo deck, Jack Lafard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stooping, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Easter Bunny. Fucker out. <laughs>